John 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in uh, the chair back in front of you. Feel free to take that home with you if you don't have a Bible. It's our gift to you. We're in a series of messages right now that we've called Christ Our Life, in which we're studying the ever-powerful truth that the gospel is not just a set of propositions to believe in. It is that, but it's more. The gospel is ultimately the very life of Christ given to us. And last week, Tad preached on uh, the betrayal of Jesus, and um, I'd just like to publicly thank you, Tad. That was a great message. Uh, He did a great job, didn't he? Hopefully that level of applause doesn't communicate to you (laughs) the depth with which people appreciated your sermon, Tad. Um, But if you missed it, uh, Tad took a passage that is often thought of as weird um, and abstract, about a particular person, Judas, and did a great job of showing how Judas's betrayal is reflected in our ongoing struggle with sin. So if you miss it, I encourage you to listen to it. Today we want to simply continue walking through the next thought in John 13. That's what we'll be doing, Lord willing, between now and August, is just walking thought by thought through uh, what Jesus said as we cover this really monumental period of time in which um, we find these words. So John 13, 31. Would you read with me there? John 13, 31. And when he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you'll think with me just for a moment back to what we've already covered we, we said that Jesus showed his sacrificial love by washing his disciples' feet, which would have been considered an incredible menial, incredibly menial task. That he, he washed their feet, and then he revealed that Judas was the betrayer. And now, essentially, what he says today in this paragraph is, I'm about to finish the work of love that the Father sent me to do. And after I do that work, I won't be here anymore. And you are to continue that work on. So that's in essence what he's saying. I'm about to finish the work of love I set out to do. Now you continue to carry it on. Church, according to Jesus, love is the defining mark of the church. Love is the defining mark of Christian relationships. There are many signs of Christianity. A cross, a crown, an empty tomb, a church building. But what we ought to think of when we think of Christianity is love. That should be the trait that marks us the most. Unless you've been around a a lot of really grumpy Christians, or you've never heard a sermon before, God's command to love, or that Christianity is to be loving, probably is not a surprise to you. But there is a surprising word in this passage. Is there a word that stands out to you as odd? 
Maybe a bit strange. Why is that word in there? No? Not rhetorical. I'm really asking. Not baited. I did not bait someone. New. New. Why would Jesus say, I'm giving you a new command? A new command to love each other. That's a surprising word to find in this passage. What in the world would he have meant by this commandment is new? After all, Deuteronomy 6 tells us to love God. Here's what it says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That was spoken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus said that. Or in Leviticus 19, it says to love each other. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Also written way before Jesus said, I have a new commandment for you. So we're left with one of two options. Either Jesus didn't know the Old Testament, or he meant something other than no one has ever heard this before when he said this is new. Which one would you vote for? Hopefully the second. So what's new about the commandment to love? Well, that will be what we spend our time on together this morning. I think we could say that what Jesus said is new is accentuated in three things. He gave a new pattern of love, which we'll talk about in depth. That new pattern is Jesus. He gave a new people to love. Those people are the church. And he gave a new power that made that love possible. He gave himself. Those three things are new in this new commandment to love. New pattern, new people, new power. And I will never this year again do an alliteration. This is for those of you in the room that like those. So new pattern, new people, new power. Let's talk about the first, new pattern. Look at verse 34 with me. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You're to love one another. What is the standard of the love that Christians are to have towards one another? Is it just a little bit better than you treat your sibling? No, it's the highest possible standard there could ever be. Jesus says, the way that I've loved you, that's the love that you're to have for each other. Just as kind of love. It's an unselfish, sacrificial, pure love. If you read the Gospels closely, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the biographies of Jesus' life. What you'll see is that everything Jesus did was from a heart of love. Friends, the love Jesus has for you is incomprehensible. It's incredible. We don't have words to fully describe the love with which Jesus loves you. Jesus loved you even to the point of death. Now, when we hear that, honestly, at least for me, I think, eh, what really does that mean in terms of how I should love someone? Because more than likely none of us in the room 
will ever be called to give up our literal physical life for the sake of somebody else. So it seems kind of churchy and unhelpful. But in reality, it will mean that we're called to die little deaths every single day. Every time you lovingly choose to do something or say something, or hold your cheek, tongue in cheek, or speak up, every time you give away money to somebody in need, or build support for your church into your monthly budget, Every time you listen to a brother or sister in Christ struggle with the same thing you've heard them struggle with 500 times before. Every time you serve in an area of ministry or do something for somebody in your gospel community. Every time you go out of your way to mentor someone else in the faith. Each little tiny decision you make to give your life away to another brother or sister in Christ is dying a little death. Because In each case, you're saying, no, my heart and my culture are wrong. Life is not about me. Life is about Christ. And so I'll give myself away to serve you. You're not going to be asked probably to give your physical life, but you will be asked to sacrificially give of your time, your gifts, your treasure, your home, in order to bless another brother or sister in Christ. That's you saying, just as Jesus loved me, I want to love you. The Apostle Paul came to understand this love Jesus calls us to and described it very well in a passage many of you will be familiar with, 1 Corinthians 13. It'll be on the screens. He said that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Maybe you've heard those words before in a public setting. Have you? Where? At a wedding. Now, if you use them, if you're married and you use them in your wedding, uh, I don't intend this to be offensive to you. But Paul was not talking about your wedding when he wrote those words. Actually, it has absolutely nothing to do with a husband and a wife. Not that they shouldn't be characterized by that kind of love, they should, but he's actually talking to the church. He had in mind not a husband and a wife, but a brother and sister in Christ, as he described that kind of love. He's saying, Christians, Jesus called us to a new commandment to love each other, and here's what that love ought to look like. As I prayed about the message this week and thought about ways in which we could illustrate that, one collective example uh, came to mind. Tad spoke earlier in the announcements about uh, this season of considering a different form of church governance for us as a body. One week from today, the bylaws and governance team will propose a new set of bylaws to the church. Can I get a woohoo? Woo-hoo. Interesting, they're much more energetic about that than your sermon. <laughs> uh, th- to be frank, these bylaws will call us as a body to a much, much higher degree of responsibility as members. They'll call us to install and follow the care and leadership of elders. It'll call us to seek both men and women to be deacons. 
And for some of us, those are things we've never seen. Or perhaps we've experienced unhelpful, broken versions of them that have left us with scars. For some of us, these bylaws will call us to die daily to our own little preferences and desires. Not really doctrinal issues, but but preferences and opinions. The measure of our love is not shown in how we treat each other when we agree. It's easy to love each other when we agree. It's when we disagree. Will we still love then? If those proposals bring up any conflict, will we love each other in our conflict? Would someone be looking in on our conversation next Sunday that's not a believer, listening in and be able to hear these people are committed to each other. They love each other. There's something beyond them bigger than they are. And we, of course, would say that's not a something. It's a someone. It's Christ. That's what we must do. That's what Jesus has commanded us. And well beyond something formal like bylaws, we have ample opportunities to demonstrate love in our relationships with one another in the Monday through Saturday of every single week. A few weeks ago, we said that one of the ways we serve each other is by admitting when we fail and confessing it as sin and pursuing peace together. And I want to continue to beat on that drum because Tempe knows nothing of that kind of life. Tempe says we're all in charge of our own lives, and if there's disagreement over anything, then just go your own way. We live in an increasingly broken, fractured world. And there is a sense in which we can talk about that negatively, but there's another sense, much more hopeful sense, in which we can talk about it positively. Church on Mill has a tremendous opportunity to show, to demonstrate, through our relationships with each other, that Christ is real, that God really is love, and that there is a power that can overcome our differences, and create love among each other. Referencing the practical application of John 13, Francis Schaeffer wrote this. It'll be on the screens. What does it mean to love each other? Here's what he said. First, it means a very simple thing. It means that when I have made a mistake and when I failed to love my Christian brother, I go to him and say, I'm sorry. Let's try that together. I'm sorry. One more. I'm sorry. Friends, we don't say that enough. Instead, when there is an offense, right or wrong, we simply turn and walk away. But God calls us to love. And love, as Schaefer says, is to say, I'm sorry. That is the first. Now, I really love this next paragraph. It may seem like a letdown, that the first thing we speak of should be so simple. But if you think it's easy, you've never tried to practice it. There is more, there is more to observable love than saying we're sorry. There must also be open forgiveness. And though it's hard to say I'm sorry, it's even harder to say I forgive you. The Bible, however, makes plain that the world must observe a forgiving spirit in the midst of God's people. So that leads me to ask you personally to consider a question. Is there anyone in the church family that you need to go to and say, I'm sorry? 
Is there anyone? Anyone? Would you do that today, perhaps, before you ever leave this room? Would you commit now in Christ, if this is your church home, and you're aware that there's some rub with someone else, to go to them before you leave and say, I'm sorry, and end it there? No explanation. No yes, but. No, I'm sorry, but you really shouldn't have done that. But just, I'm sorry. I love you. I hope you'll do it. Jesus has given us this as a new pattern that we would love just as he has loved us. Now, who? Who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the other aspect of this that's new. It's a new people. The Bible tells us to love all people. It says to even love our enemies. Love for the world is an important part of what it means to be a Christian. But that's not what this passage is about. And it's not the most powerful way that we demonstrate the gospel. The way John says the world will come to know that the gospel is true and that we belong to Christ is not by loving the whole world in a general sense, but by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in particular. Look at verse 35. By this, by what? By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Many of us in the room have or have had loving moms. So happy Mother's Day to you moms. Jill, there's no one in the world that would make a better mother to Abby and Micah than you. Thank you. When we think of family warmly, so not the, the negative images we have, but when we think of family warmly, for many of us, what we think of is the love and care we receive from our mothers. A lot of us have really messed up dads, but a lot of us have really great moms. We think of familial love as the love of a mother, the love and care that she gives. What if all of us as Christians loved each other the way a godly mom loves her kids? Does that help you get the image of what he's saying? What if the way a mom sacrifices her own life for the good of her kids was the way we treated each other? Ladies, some of you in the room do not have children and you'd really like to. This Sunday is one of the hardest of the year for you. It's okay that today's hard. You don't need to feel guilty about that. This is a safe place for you. There are people here that could use your love. There are people here who need a godly woman to bless them, to give to them, to serve them, to mentor them. You don't have to have a biological child to love well. And maybe the part, part of God's plan for your life today is that you would engage your church family in that way. Think of the witness to the world if all of us, and in particular if the women in the room without kids, made sacrifices to love the church family well. That would stand in such sharp contrast to the world that we would have tremendous opportunities to answer the question, why in the world would you do that? 
with because Christ loves me. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, Jesus stakes the authenticity of your Christian faith on the love that you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So to say that another way, to say that more directly, love your brothers and sisters in Christ in a sustained way over the long haul, that shows you're a Christian. Show selfishness, pride, bitterness, and an unwillingness to serve and forgive, then the world has every right to say, that's not a Christian. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, why would selfless love in the church be that big of a deal? There's not very many things that God says, do this well, not perfectly, but well, in a sustained way, that shows you're a Christian. Neglect this consistently, long-term, that shows you're not. That is a big statement. He's talking heaven and hell there. Why would he talk like that about love? Well, because it gets to the very essence, the very heart of what Christianity is. God loved us, therefore we can love. It gets to the heart of who God is. Love among a church family is designed by God to reflect Trinity-level oneness. We'll see that later in the summer. That the way the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father, that interconnected unity, that constant pointing to the other, giving deference and honor and love, is a reflection of who God is. That's who God is. God is love. And therefore, the people who would say, I am loved by him ought to reflect that love. You see, God's plan is not simply to save a bunch of individuals so that those individuals can go to heaven when you die and have your own little personal savior. That's not the biblical gospel. God's plan is to form a new people and this new community created by Jesus' death and resurrection would reflect the very love of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Spirit. This love is to be a love that transcends differences, the differences that typically would divide us. Hear those words, that thought, in Ephesians 2. It'll be on the screen. Listen to the way he talks about the way you used to be and the way you now are collectively. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to covenant and promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the death on the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, we have access to one spirit by the Father. Now listen to this closely. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, 
but your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built in the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Why is God telling us, live together in love? Why? Because that's where God dwells. That's where God reveals himself. That's through whom the world would see that Christ is real. The Bible is true. God is alive. Jesus saves. That's why it's such a big deal. God is redeeming a people for himself, a people that should not be divided by anything. The world urgently needs to see that unity and love, doesn't it? The love that Jesus calls us to. Think practically with me about that for a moment. Unless you live with your head in the sand, then you're well aware that there's tremendous um, revelation of the, the ethnic divide that still exists in America, right? How is that being pictured right now in the, the U.S. scene? Black versus white, right? What kind of impact would little communities of light, churches, have today in Baltimore? The, the, the city where we've seen buildings being burned, people being shot, riots ensuing. What would happen if Baltimore was filled, not with huge megachurches, but with gatherings like this, two, three hundred people, where black and white together are saying, the core of my identity is not the color of my skin, but my Savior. And so, black and white no longer are a point of division. In Christ, we're one. And that doesn't mean I lose all of my cultural heritage. Some of us can dance and some of us can't. <laughs> that doesn't mean we lose our heritage, but our, our cultural differences see, show as we come together to highlight the unity of Christ and the gospel. Friends, there, there would be no riots going on in the city if that's what the churches in the city were doing. It's ultimately a failure not of the police, but of the church. The church is to be a sign of heaven on earth today. So we're not in Baltimore, but what if we emphasized here being a radically diverse community? Well, I'm thankful that in many ways we are. What's new about the new commandment to love? Well, it, What's new is there's a new pattern, Jesus himself. They never could have understood that in the Old Testament. And what's new is there's a new people, a people not gathered by ethnicity, but gathered by a shared common experience of being redeemed by Christ. And so we have a new people, a people 
under Jesus. We also have a new power. New power. The commandment to love is devastating. Dia Carson put it this way. The new commandment is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate. Profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poor they comprehend it and put it into practice. Love one another. Think about what Jesus is actually commanding when he says, love just as I have loved you. That sounds all warm and fuzzy. Puppy dogs and rainbows, hearts and butterflies. But it's actually crushing. Because think about how he loves. He's saying to us, love with an ever-perfect, ever-giving, ever-sacrificial, totally pure love. Never have mixed motives. Never react in selfish anger. Never harbor unforgiveness, even when you're hurt. Hold all your possessions loosely and give them away to any brother or sister that has need. Never seek the approval of people. Just love them. Never pout. Never respond harshly. Never be lazy at the expense of a legitimate need you're able to meet. Never fail to stand up for someone who's been treated unjustly. Love just as Jesus loved. I can't do that. You can't do that. So Jesus says, do this. It, it's, it's not a, an optional, it's not like the stop sign in your neighborhood. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. He says, you must do this. But we can't. The new commandment to love is a crushing commandment. You can't do it and I can't do it. But that's the point. That is the point. In and of ourselves, we have no hope of loving like Jesus. But if we become Christians, and if we're daily experiencing the love that Christ has for us, afresh and anew every day, starting our day sitting with God, listening to him tell us in the scriptures, I love you, live today with me, then Christ can love through us, can he not? You see, if we're experiencing the love of Christ personally, then the power to love is always present because Christ is our life. The power to love is his power. Jesus himself does this work in us because he is our very life. The new pattern is who? Jesus. The new people are who? His body. The new power comes from who? Jesus. Him in us. The power to love well is a power that's crystal clear when you see it. There is no question when you're experiencing just as kind of love. You know it. Why? Because it's coming from another world. 
There's supernatural work happening when you say no to yourself and yes to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why it draws lost people and glorifies Christ because it so clearly demonstrates God's power at work in us. So there's a new pattern, there's a new power, and there's a new people. Let's think together just in a few remaining moments about putting this into practice. We organize church life around this principle of Jesus' commandment to love. I hope you've heard nothing today, unless you're here for the first time, that you would say, oh, I've never heard that before. In some ways, it feels silly to be saying this to me yet again, but I've needed to hear it again this week. I've needed to be reminded that I can't love you the way God calls me to in and of myself, only Christ in me. If Church on Mill is your home church, please understand that we take seriously the responsibility to encourage you to love like Jesus says to All of church life here at Church of Mill is structured to be relational, to encourage you to take initiative, to care for people in the church, to get to know them, to attend connection classes that change every seventh week so you're forced to get to know people different than you, to encourage you consistently to mentor and disciple, to do evangelism together, to even live together when there's a need. But the place these principles find their clearest application is in our gospel communities, where we commit to living out the gospel together in intentionally intrusive community on mission for the glory of God. So the application of this is quite simple. If you're here and you're a member, this is your home church, are you in a group? And if so, do you merely attend or do you go not as a spectator, but as a lover, as, as someone seeking to love that group in particular well as a way of loving the whole body? Are you dying daily by loving your brothers and sisters in whatever way they need, not whatever way you need? Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes that kind of love possible. And not only possible, It makes it probable. And not only probable, it makes it exactly what will happen as we're trusting Christ and walking with him. You see, Christians can love because they've died. Our life is now hidden with Christ and God. Christ is our life. And Christ has absolutely no trouble loving. In fact, he does it perfectly. We've been set free from the shackles of sin and we're free then to love each other even as Christ has loved us because we have this new pattern and new people and new power. We love because Christ first loved us. We love because Christ loves through us. And friends, if you know nothing of that kind of love and you want it, then understand Christ is reaching out to you today. You can experience Truly, completely, sacrificial, unconditional love. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, then understand despite your rejection of God 
and his good ways. Jesus is reaching out to you in love. And what he asks is that you would turn from your life of sin and turn to him for salvation. You can know the love of God and live the way we're talking about today. Not because you try harder, but because you get a new life. You get forgiven by God and God himself comes to live in you. So if that's you, won't you submit to God, confess you've lived life apart from him, and put your trust in him? That's what it means to become a Christian. Friends, in closing, the path of love is the path of humility. Have you heard that in what we've said today? Here's a quote from Tim Keller to help us get at that. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. It's an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. It means I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Friends, it's that ability to walk in a room and know my identity is secure in Christ. My name is written in the book of life in heaven. Nothing I can do can change that. Christ loves me completely, unconditionally. I will never be more accepted than I am right now. Therefore, I'm free to love completely, freely, without thinking of myself. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound freeing? That's what the gospel calls us to. That's what the gospel commands us to do. That's what the gospel enables us to do. Through Christ, we can love each other like that. So that through our witness of how we love each other, Tempe, Arizona could know We belong to Christ, and he can be theirs. Let's pray.